Happy Friday, everyone. Have a fantastic weekend. I merged my intro into the show, so this is literally just to tell you that we're talking about waking life. Shabbat Shalom for all my Yidin listening. Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Self-Improved. Today, we are going to get philosophical, okay? By the way, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate five stars. I don't know why. I guess it helps. Anyways, I'm going to cut to the chase. We've got a, a an episode today talking about Waking Life. This movie is like an animated movie on a bunch of philosophical ideologies, which I absolutely eat up. Enjoy. All right, so this whole thing you can watch on YouTube if you really want. Just type in Waking Life. And again, if you're wondering if it's the real thing, yes, it is that weird-looking animated, like some horrible Instagram filter has been used on the movie. But regardless, it kicks it off with this guy. He's in a boat, and the boat is a car. I, I know, And this whole thing's going to sound like a dream. It actually is because it is a dream. That's what they kind of try. Well, it, it's up for debate at the end, just like philosophy's up for debate. So it's a whole... Uh, metaphor in honestly and anyways they're driving in this boat car the guy's just he's preaching about his beliefs and one of the things he says he goes i feel like my transport can be an extension of my personality now right away this reminded me of a philosophical concept called inner versus outer world it's actually a paradox as well because what it deems is that our conscious our our inner world what we believe in our head our imagination our fantasies projects out the outer world. But however, for us to even create fantasies in our minds, we need to use substance from the outer world. As you can see, that's a paradox because what came first, chicken or the egg? Was it the outer world that gave us the inspiration to create the fantasy and imagination? Or was it our imagination and fantasy that's simply giving us perception of reality? Now, he could be talking about another thing, reflection. And reflection, we hear this word all the time, but I like to look at the philosophical term reflection. And this isn't coined. This is actually, I kind of coined it myself, sorry. It's where everything is a reflection of you. Literally everything. Even the grass you see, that's a reflection of you because you chose to look at the grass. You chose to be there. You chose to be in London, Ontario, looking at the grass. And it's literally test me on this. It, Everything is a reflection of you and your choices, decisions, and beliefs. Now, of course, you always have to play devil's advocate with yourself. And maybe this fellow, when he says that, he literally means that this car or transport just resembles him and his persona. Maybe it's as simple as that. You know, I could be looking way too deep into this. However, it's fun to look deep into things. So get at me. He then says, the sea refuses no river. I'll say that again. The sea refuses no river. And I literally put here, like, what does that quote mean? I really had to try to break this down. I was asking a lot of people, and I've got a lot of different answers. I want you to think about this. What does this mean? The sea refuses no river. At the time, I, I thought of this as we absorb our environment and information, whether we like it or not. It is a part of us. It makes us who we are, somewhat out of, out of our control. And we learn from anything we take in. Now, it's been, I want to say, a year since I've seen this. I personally, looking back, that's my answer back then. Today, I would tell you, I think it's a metaphor for synergy. It literally resembles how everything in this world is synergistic. It's working with each other. It needs each other. Just like a sea and river, synergistically flow. He then says, the idea is to remain in a state of constant departure while always arriving. Saves on intros and goodbyes. This is, I, I said even back then, I don't fully understand this. What are your thoughts? Like to this day, I think it's just a poetic piece of schmaltz. Uh, by the way, in Yiddish, schmaltz is fat, but it's slang for like fancy. So that's my take on it. I, what do you think that means? The idea is to remain in a state of constant departure while always arriving. Saves on intros and goodbyes. He kind of now saying it a second time there, it kind of just sounds like presence. Like he's re referring to just be present. The fellow goes on to say, the ride doesn't require an explanation, just occupants. It's like you come into this planet with a crayon box. You might get an 8-pack, you might get a 16-pack. It's what you do with them. And you can color inside or outside the lines. He says, heck, I think you should color outside the lines. You know, he then mentions that dropping him off where he isn't going will determine the rest of his life. This is very true. 
Uh, every second of our life previous to this moment has brought us here. We've all heard this. Every single person you've met has compiled you and your persona. Every single piece of the environment has created your persona. So he's saying that him dropping him off is just going to be one little piece in that puzzle. Now that analogy to the crayon box, and we all get a different box and we all color different things. It reminds me of another analogy. Uh, let me, yeah, poker. You're dealt a hand. You cannot control the hand you're dealt. But what you can control is what you do with your hand. I know it's cliche, but seriously, think of your life the same exact way. And that is what, to me, deems success. Success is subjective to you. You have your own definition of it. Uh, a janitor that got out of the projects and is making a decent living, that is extremely successful. Kylie Jenner, a millionaire from birth, becoming a billionaire and scaling a business is very successful. They are both extremely successful, but on their own subjective matters. It's no different than someone getting a seven and a two at the poker table versus someone getting double aces. If the person goes all in to bluff with the seven, two and fails like that, that's not successful on their part. They should have, uh, they should have folded. That would have been successful. The person with the double aces, they better win. That's successful to just win the pot. You know what I'm saying? It's all subjective. Creation seems to come out of imperfection. It seems to come out of striving and frustration. This, this quote from the movie, I don't know if y'all just felt that vibration. My phone's just going off here. But anyways, that quote, it restored my faith in the opportunities that pop up out of nowhere. Typically, when we think we aren't doing things perfectly, we think we think it's wrong. We put this negative connotation to it. A literal example I had wrote down at the time was being the strength and conditioning coach for the Western wrestling team. I was emailing so many people and getting no responses. And if I did get a few, they were rejections. I got an opportunity that could you could call that creation i created the position for the wrestling program there and that was through a lot of frustration and striving can you think of anything in your life that the creation that's come out of imperfection that striving and frustration can you think of any moments when you haven't created something through imperfection striving and frustration like to me it actually seems like 99 percent of the time that's how it works that when things are perfect, there is no creating happening. You're maintaining. Now, I would love, I didn't write this down, but I would love to throw patience in the mix there. Some people might think they aren't creating because they're just coasting. When in reality, if they're patient after a decade or two of this quote-unquote coasting, they could create something quite significant. The quote for this was extremely thorough and long, so I just paraphrased, but it is regarding language. And it says, you know, we've come, came up with words to explain the sound of water and lion. However, things like love, anger, fear, we use the same symbols in the alphabet that we did for simple things like water and lion. We use those same symbols to articulate such complex, untangible feelings. These symbols, literally symbols in our alphabet, they just don't do the articulation of our feelings justice. So I, I did write word for word from the movie this one part because this next part to me was so poetic. I absolutely loved it. When I say love, the sound comes out of my mouth and hits the other person's ear, travels through this Byzantine conduit in their brain, through their memories of love or lack of love. They say, yes, they understand, but how do I know they understand? Because words are inert. They're just symbols. They're dead. So much of what we perceive can't be expressed. It's extraordinarily intangible. And here I'll paraphrase a little more as the woman goes on to say that when we do feel as though someone really understands what we're articulating, it's more of a spiritual communion or a recognition than anything. That part, that is really powerful. A spiritual communion or recognition. When you and someone else, even though you're throwing these symbols that have your own definitions at each other, you truly vibrate on the same wavelengths. I absolutely love that. Even then, not to, not to, you know, be the, the bad guy here. I'm just saying, you that's assumptions. So if you think you and someone else are having this spiritual communion, you're vibrating on the same wavelengths, that is a big assumption being made. And you never know actually if it's true. That, that is the frustrating part with this is you never actually know what the other person's feeling no matter what they say. And this is what makes it philosophical. 
is they could say, I completely understand. But every little symbol they use there is just a reflection of their baggage and their definitions of those meanings of words. That And that's exactly what this said here, right? This is what she said about love, right? She says here, it's, it's through their memories of love or lack of love. And so every word, even the mundane words, by, you know, technically speaking, we can all have our own definitions emotionally about those words. And so when you never actually know if you and someone else have a spiritual communion or this, this parallel energy is what I'm saying, which is, I know I sound like a pessimist or, or I sound skeptical, but I'm just saying. So anyways, she finishes all that off and says that feeling of our spiritual communion, that feeling of really resonating with someone else, that is what we live for, is what this person says in the movie. That is what we live for. And that is, that's philosophy. This whole movie is philosophy, by the way. And that, that statement, that is what we live for, is philosophy. It's really powerful. Like, you're listening to me right now being overwhelmed and bewildered. And you're probably laughing. You're like, holy fuck, Seth. Like, chill out. It's not that crazy. It, to me, it actually is. Like, what, what are we living for? So our emotions are tied to everything. Our emotions literally are dictating our will to live. Us as a species would not want to live if we didn't have that will to live through our limbic brain. <laughs> like, like it's actually powerful. Like our definition of emotions and when we hear these words and we tie these emotional definitions to it, that literally is is our longing to live. That that without language, we can't even create the the perception of wanting to live. We can't even create or not perception, we can't even create the concept of wanting to live without the language, right? And so I would actually argue like these feelings is what we live for. And we try to articulate these feelings with other people. And sharing that is tribalism. And tribalism helped us live. Holy, like that's, that concept is mind-blowing. That's Meshuggah. So I'll ask you, like, what are your thoughts on all of that? Maybe pause this. Maybe phone someone up and be like, holy shit, I just listened to this thing about definition of love and how the symbols, blah, 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 blah. What are your thoughts? I'll tell you, this scene showed me just how superficial language is. I can see how language is the foundation for our lives. Maybe better put our perception of our lives. But, you know, when she said it's what we live for, I, I didn't really understand until I pondered longer. All my heaviest memories I'll have until I die are tied to inexpressible feelings. I do personally live for the mental photo album of my life checkpoints. And... Actually, what is crazy is I don't know if I'm ashamed or proud to say that. It sounds pretty selfish and a little egotistical. But I don't know. I don't know. That's how I feel right now. Those checkpoints, though, aren't just me. Like, there's so many people in those checkpoints. And that makes me grateful. I have love to all those people in those checkpoints. Like we, we said really early on. Because they all made me who I am today. Which made me who the people I love are. And it's this huge network of connection, I guess. Connection and influence, really. Okay, on to the next one. That was deep as hell. Oh, and trust me, it will get just as deep. This whole movie is. So there's a scene, and I'm going to paint this picture for you. Picture a guy. He looks like Einstein, the wild Meshuggah hair. He expresses a concept on exponential acceleration of evolution. And actually, on a side note, I watched a TED Talk on artificial intelligence. At the time, it was new, but now it's probably six years old. He actually talked about something that Naval Harari talked about in Sapiens, which is this. We've got hunter and gatherer phase of human beings, 100,000 years roughly. We have um, agriculture, so farming and stuff, 10,000 years plus. We then have the industrial revolution, 100, maybe 200 years tops. No, no, actually not even 100 years. And in the 80s roll around, we have a big tech boom. And this fellow in the TED Talks says, we are on the cusp of a new boom of some sort in human evolution. Now, did you notice a trend there? Any of my mathematicians listening, did you see a pattern? I bet you did. That we had an exponential curve in progression of human evolution. Not just the progression, but actually, yes, the acceleration 
which is kind of the same thing. Anyways, and it, that is really trippy because it makes you theorize, like, will the day come when it's truly exponential? Where every day you wake up with some new piece of tech and you think, Zev, it's, that's, that's impossible, man. We, we'll get to a point then where every second, because it's exponential, so every second something new will come out. And every millisecond, and it's exponential, so now there wouldn't even be a clock that can go fast enough to create a progression. And then it will plateau. And I say, okay, sure. That is an option. It could plateau, but Schrodinger's cat, uh, for anyone that hasn't heard that, I'm not going to explain, go Google it. The option is there as well for it to stay exponential. And what I'm about to tell you actually proves that it could be. I'll explain. The fellow discusses what a neo-human of the future would be like. And he goes on to whatever, blah, blah, around. But then he says the individual this is the neo-human, by the way. The individual will not be restricted by time and space. That was this prediction he makes about the future. So this character, he theorizes that the manifestations of this neo-human would be counterintuitive, actually. Counterintuitive because the old human being, old evolution, was extremely cutthroat. It was derived from social behavior, morality, etc., etc., things that make us feel human. Now, to the neo-humans, so new evolution, it's not held down by time and space, okay? And it could be completely based on loyalty and honesty. And these are a few things he names, which I don't like that he says that's what it's based on, because it could be based on, that, that neo-human could be based on a million other things when time and space aren't limited. But what he's saying is its motives will be opposite, actually, to humans of today. Today, we're almost completely intuition-based. We are relying on our gut feeling all the time. New evolution may, might use counterintuitive thinking because they don't need instant gratifi gratification. Uh, space and time would be hypothetically non-linear. And for this reason, um, and, and actually I do, sorry to cut that thought off. I want to tell you about, what the, what's the name for it? Elon Musk's making, making something to put in people's brains. And anyways, because time wouldn't be linear, we wouldn't we wouldn't have to deal with things the same intuitive way because remember intuition usually that that gut feeling you have is in the moment you're reacting to the present moment now without time and space we wouldn't even have these present moments to make quick decisions on so there go your instincts and that's what i'm saying there goes being cutthroat and all the stuff the old evolution you know proposed would keep you alive so okay now that i've confused you so much. Uh, let me jump back a little bit. And remember at the very beginning, I was telling you about that exponential growth and acceleration in human progression. Well, if, if we made a computer chip to go in people's heads and they are already making quantum computer chips and down the road, you know, they'll make a quantum computer. And for anyone, I, I don't want to mansplain, but I'm just going to assume someone listening to this doesn't know what that would do. Pretty much when coding, instead of it being a one and a zero and there's a space in between, and like the computer has to process the one and the zero separately like a conga line, the computer could process the one and the zero at the exact same time. There would be no conga line. Like imagine if conga line at the dance club is actually an accordion that's been morphed into one thing, yet it, the conga line still exists just all at the same time. That is what quantum computing is. So so. If you could put a quantum computing chip in a person's brain, and since we know our neurons adapt, okay, that's what neuroplasticity is. Neurons adapt to our environment. That quantum computing chip would be part of your environment. You would then, in essence, hypothetically, have quantum neurons, a neuron that just like a computer either fires or does not fire. Therefore, if you put a one to equate to the firing of a neuron and a zero to equate to the non-firing of a neuron, you, in essence, can code the brain, and this has been done to caterpillars. No, 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 a worm. They did code a worm's brain. It's called mind mapping, the genome. It's really, really incredible, so go Google that. Back to my tangent, which is if you could mind map a human's brain, you could, in essence, code the brain because of the neurons firing. So let's say you ask someone a question. It makes them happy, and you see on the computer a million, actually, it would probably be billions, if not a trillion, numbers because of all the neurons we have and let's say you threw that in the computer would the computer be happy it is technically firing all the same 
binary code that our brain is because our brain is just like a really advanced computer that even scientists and PhDs haven't fully understood and we never will. People, think about it. <laughs> if our brain could be a non-binary quantum brain and if we're worried about the exponential acceleration getting so fast that it is now progressing society every millisecond if not quicker because it's exponential so you get to a point where clocks are not fast enough to keep up with the tech but if our brains are quantum which means time doesn't exist anymore because things are firing at the exact same time so if a future outcome is happening your brain's already processed it if a past outcomes happened it's already processed it if the present outcomes happening those three outcomes are happening at the exact same time, a.k.a. time and space does not exist. Now, this all sounds mashuga, and I sound like a yutz, but it's all philosophy. So you can't tell me I'm wrong, but you can't tell me I'm right. And I understand I could be right and wrong. Okay, that's the fun of, of philosophy. So if you've stuck with me through all of that, you will understand that this neo-human, in essence, could keep up with... Our exponential growth and that maybe that exponential growth ironically creates the neo-human that can keep up with it there's my little spiel on that it is i love talking about the future of, of science and the future of tech and how those go hand in hand and the future of our biology there's a ted talk called bionics and or the future of bionics or something look that up that is just so compelling as well and we could make super soldiers running 30 miles an hour if we really wanted to but uh, anyways Sorry, people, I was getting a phone call there. Anyways, let's get back. So so uh, the, next, the next point I want to make here, it's regarding the industrial revolution thing. And I remember this is actually so off topic, but excuse me, because like I said, this, this podcast is me rambling. If you're not ready to hear some, someone ramble, get out of here. Just stop listening. All right, anyways, so I watched a video and it was discussing how the industrial revolution, those factories being made, it actually influenced how they created schooling because schooling and just the concept of our classrooms and our education system is actually really young. It's young. Like schooling used to be way different people. I'm not going to pretend I'm a mother when it comes to schooling. Like I'll have to go back and look. Anyways, the factories, think about it. They tell you when to eat lunch. They tell you when to show up. They tell you when to leave. Everyone faces the front. Everyone has a workstation. Everyone brings a lunch and a pail. Uh, you have a boss telling you what to do. You have a boss telling you where to line up, what to do, where to go. You have a bell that dismisses you and tells you when to get to your next class, when to get work started, when to eat, when to stop eating, when to get exercise. Breaks really is what that exercise is, just breaks. Uh, you have colleagues you have to work with in groups on projects potentially. And uh, last but not least, you have work packets. You have deadlines, Okay. So what does this sound like? I know you probably couldn't tell if I was talking about school or work. <laughs> and isn't this funny? Okay, so they actually, it's a theory. And now that one guy was really, really passionate about it. He was adamant that it was true. They made school to prep you for the factories. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there wasn't just, maybe there wasn't a better way to teach kids. So you tell me, but that's why private institutions started popping up and teaching kids a little differently, getting them outside, putting them in different working scenarios. I don't know. Now, I, I couldn't help but get a little deeper about this. And so think about school. You have a quota, okay? They need you to do a certain amount of work and get a certain amount of work done at a certain quality. And get this, if you complete that at that quality, they actually up the ante. They increase the demand. They You receive another packet that's just more difficult. Or at least you get pushed by your boss, a.k.a. the teacher. I don't care what you want to call them. There's the teachers, the, I guess not the teachers. They're, they're slaves to, the, to it as well. It's more like the people that create the, the curriculums. They are in control regarding our pace of learning and content. And schooling in general, it's funny how they really try to prep you for life. You know, that it is, it's the school life. Your teachers, they, they have bosses to report to, just like at the factory. And, and it's this whole line of authority. So, and the principals have bosses, like it never ends. I also realized how much school represents government, okay? Students being society but obviously with a little less say. I'm talking about public school resembling society, not the private sectors. You know, most people, just like in society, you put your head down, you do what you're told, and you'll usually come out on top. You'll be given rewards, but they're just enough rewards that you'll stay devoted, right? They're not going to give you too much, but they're not going to give you too little so you don't rebel. They're going to give you just enough so that you're rewarded and you want to come back. Then, you know, you're going to get your, your misfits. You're going to get your rebels, the people that want to speak up about what they don't like. 
Guess what they're going to do? They're going to silence you. Just like in society, the rebels and the misfits are going to be silenced, okay? Uh, dare I say even oppressed. And, and think of the principal's office. If the kids start speaking out, God forbid they make the other kids think the same thing because a whole classroom rebelling against a teacher makes that teacher powerless. So then they're going to send that kid to the office, silence them, and the rest of those sheep, a.k.a. the students, are going to just flow by. Now you're probably wondering, is that why again you got to be so pessimistic? Why are you such a skeptic? I completely understand. There are kids who enjoy it. They, there are kids that are being forced to be quiet and put their head down and do the work. There are kids that genuinely enjoy doing that. And it is no different than society. You're going to get members in society who love going to their 9 to 5, love paying the tax, which, again, the laws make us have to. And I'm saying we should give back to our community. That's what tax is. You're pretty much giving back to community and giving politicians vacations. Anyways, just like society, it's okay. Some people like that. They like being told what to do and putting their head down, okay? And that's why school resembles society. You're going to have both. I'm sure there's way more analogies you could make, but for the time being, I'm going to keep it at that and move on. One second, my veggies are done. I got to turn them on. On a side note, people, I'm telling you, baked veggies with a little bit of seasoning, salt, and pepper, I'm telling you, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. And eating healthy, people think eating healthy is gross. Telling you, you get addicted to it, especially when it tastes that good. Go bake your veggies and put some dope ass seasoning on there. So this fellow, he talks about dreaming versus reality. He says when people die, their brains keep working sometimes. He also says that if we can experience so much in a short amount of time when we're sleeping, what if people experienced partial lifetimes in those dying minutes? Now, I think that would be fascinating. But this guy says that theoretically, how do we not know our whole life is just a dream in reality or that little, that little moment that when we're dying, when our brain is still going off. I, it, I don't buy it one bit. Actually, that's one piece of philosophy. That I think it's my sugar. However, it's philosophy. Think what you want. I may exist in your mind. It's still just as real as everything else. That's a quote from the film. And there are philosophical theories that we're the only ones in the universe and that we're imagining everything that this is all in our heads. It's kind of like the matrix. I think there's a Harry Potter quote actually very similar to that in regards to our imaginations are no different than reality. Um, there's a famous saying, um, I, I, I think therefore I am. There's a concept here on collective memory. So this woman, she's in bed with a friend and she talks about our instincts that kept us alive as species being our past lives people talk about. She said, it's too egotistical to think souls travel from person to person. She believes it's actually DNA that gets passed down for thousands of years to keep us alive. She thinks this pass down of our DNA is what we confuse for reincarnation. Food for thought, I don't know. There was a scene on free will and he breaks it down and I actually didn't even bother to type out an in-depth response to that because it really is like chicken or the egg you can go so deep actually if you want to get deep on on free will i usually these are 20 minute episodes i went an hour on free will on this podcast you, you'll see it the title of the episode is free will now i'm going to give you a little summary okay just in case you're a little too lazy to go find that old episode because i've listened to podcasts where people recommend the old episodes and i'm always too lazy to do it so here you go First off, what do you identify as? You identify as your nervous system, your consciousness, your body, your tissues. What do you identify as? That actually dictates free will. Because if you say, I can throw this stick wherever I want, are you saying I as in your nervous system is deciding to throw the stick? Are you the nervous system? Are you that ner neuron firing a muscle? Are you saying I'm throwing the stick as in my consciousness is aware I'm throwing the stick? Like I am choosing to be aware of my body throwing the stick? Or are you saying I, my hand has propelled the stick forwards? And that is all that's happening. Just like I would say that rock hit a tree. That It's no different than me saying I hit the tree because I identify as the rock hitting the tree if that rock is a part of me. Anyways, already you can see how confusing it gets if you don't properly identify who I is. Who is I? Anyways, so then once you identify that, you can start making decisions with that identity in check. So you get to a fork in the road, right or left. We'll use that analogy for a lot of this. I go right. I chose to go right. But that's only because I was given two options, right or left. If there was a third option, well, then I'd be free to choose the third option. But there wasn't. And that's why some people say we don't have free will. is because we are given choices within choices. 
And what that means is like people create a preset of choice and we choose within that preset choice, I guess. Or no, no, we choose within that realm of preset choices. There you go. Okay, I can't speak anymore. Uh, then some people say we don't, uh, we don't have free will because we took a right. We can't go back in time, at least not yet. So we never even got to choose to go left. Like we thought we had a choice, but because we didn't choose to go left, we chose to go right. That was meant to happen. That was inevitable. And this is now clashing with fate and destiny. But that's why people don't believe in free will is that we didn't go left. Therefore, we never actually had the choice to go left. We, <laughs> it was an illusion that we had the choice to go left. Anyways, and so then people say like, okay, if you're going to go right, if you had to move the steering wheel to go right, you didn't tell the atoms to create cells, to create muscles, to turn right. Like you didn't make that happen. You didn't actually say, heart, I need you to pump blood to my muscle to turn the steering wheel. Uh, you didn't tell, you didn't tell a sodium and potassium pump in your brain to polarize from one end to another and, and to create osmosis so that your nervous system could contract. Like all these deep, deep, physiological states happening you did not consciously uh you didn't consciously perform i guess you didn't consciously make that happen anyways and that is all i'll say see i already spent like four minutes on that and it's easy to go down there's so many weird things you can talk about and fun things like ways that you'd believe free will and that what i just told you actually it actually could affect our future in how we make decisions with advertising, how we watch movies, how production companies create movies and sell us things. I'm telling you, it is so deep. So go watch that episode. You'll really like it. I really love talking about free will, as you can tell. So let's get back to collective memory. Just kidding. Let's get back to free will because they talk about it here. I I wrote in the notes here and I'll bring it up for fun because I think I actually said this in a past episode way back on this podcast. When I took a philosophy class in college at Fanshawe, which opened my eyes to philosophy and forever changed my life because now I love talking about it, he said two things to start the class. I'll never forget it. He said everything is subjective, which opens up the whole subjectivity-objectivity paradox. I won't talk about that right now. And he said, what comes first, interests or societies? This is classic chicken or the egg paradox because honestly, what does come first, interests or societies? A society is a bunch of people who have interests and bring value to one another. However, a society gives people interests. And I know, and then the reason I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy you and go down this rabbit hole real quick. You could go back and think, okay, Zeb, what about before a city was made? They must have then had interests. Eh, I don't know. A society could literally just be a group of people. So if they had four people and a child was conceived by some of them. Now they have interest to fulfill this little mini, mini society. I'm actually going to Google how much it takes to create a society. Maybe there's an arbitrary number I'm forgetting. So Google says, according to sociologists, a society is a group of people with common territory, interaction, and culture. Social groups consist of two or more people who interact and identify with one another. It's interesting they use the word people. I'm going to actually refer to that because this might debunk what I used to tell people. So what I used to say is, okay, so before people were people like uh, human beings, um, we were monkeys and monkeys had societies actually. And they had interests in those societies. But again, the interests were usually created by other monkeys creating them because they had objectives. And then when those monkeys weren't monkeys, let's say they were lizards you know, the lizards had societies as well. And, and those societies form interests. But remember, the interests also incentivize the society to progress. You got to remember that like the interest is just as important as the society in this case. And, and I would always go, keep going back and say, okay, and the fish in the water had societies that they and the interest forced those societies to progress to other things and complete objectives. And you could literally keep going down to the cellular level because why are we thinking cells aren't societies just because they don't have eyes, ears, and bodies and fins and tails. Like what? Like cells reproduce as well. And cells gather, they congregate in certain places to complete objectives, just like we do. We're no different than cells metaphorically. And this is what I would do. I just keep going back and back and back all the way to the cellular level. 
And that's why I'm saying it's chicken or the egg. Like, what really? Was it the Big Bang? Was that an interest? Was that, like, so maybe it was an interest? I don't know. Anyways, and our planet society is like, like, and when was a cell made to create rock? Because I guess there are cells in space to make rocks when the Big Bang happened. I don't know. This is what makes it trippy. So this says here, people. So maybe maybe it, it is interest first. Because at one point there might were just a few people. No, but monkeys would have turned to people. So maybe, yeah. So there, there were societies first? I don't know. I don't know. Here's another quote. I'm going right back to the movie here. It says, Either I am moving fast or time is. This is actually facts because Einstein's theory of relativity would would uh, agree with this statement. Either I am moving fast or time is. Go look up theories. Theories. Go look up Einstein's theory of relativity and you'll know what I mean. Like if you move the speed of light, everything would freeze. You would in essence be able to travel through time. That would be so scary. Imagine imagine going to speed of light and everything is frozen. You'd be you'd like what would happen if you touched someone then? Like honestly, a scientist should answer that. Like what would happen if you touched someone moving the speed of light? You'd cut through them probably. It's faster than the bullet. So you yeah, that I you wouldn't want to touch someone. Actually, don't do that. And who knows the wind you'd create? If there was enough fresh Oh my gosh, that would be horrible. Going to speed of light, you wouldn't even get to see people frozen cuz they'd be destroyed. Oh, but wait, wait, you would see them frozen because you wouldn't even, you'd be going so fast, you wouldn't even get to see the consequence of your action. <laughs> that is trippy. And think about it, for something that moves really slowly, time will fly, I guess. This makes you think about your own life, right? If you're moving slow, if you're not moving fast, things are going to fly by. Think about people who are like, oh, I've been in this job for 10 years. Wow, feels like yesterday. Yeah, no, no. That's because they've been doing the same thing. They've been moving slow. Move fast, people. Make moves. Try new things. Yeah, move fast. And then you're going to, life will be, maybe that's why people keep asking, like, oh, three years at your job, Zev, is it moving? I'm like, it hasn't moved fast. I've done a lot. Like, I've been, I've been trying to do a ton of, of random stuff and seeing people and, like, and taking on initiatives. Maybe that's why, I don't know about y'all listening. Like, I'm a young person. I'm 24. I don't know. A lot of my viewers are my friends who are the same age as me. So tell me, like. Do you feel time's flying by? I personally, in some aspects, especially with school and stuff, because think about it, school, you're just sitting down at a desk all the time. You're not really, even though I, I was pretty busy in school, I was doing a lot. Like some of y'all might be go-getters and stuff. Maybe it's different. That's interesting to think about though, eh? Like literally, yeah, life's going slow. At the same time, you got to do the math here. It's like a day, relatively speaking, is going to feel longer for me because I've spent less time on earth. Whereas an 80 year old, a day is going to be relatively a smaller percentage of their life. So it's going to feel quicker. I don't know. I don't know. So there's a scene, these women are talking at a cafe or something. They say that everything quote unquote will, will somehow gel and settle and then somehow end in their mid thirties. Their creativity and exploration never actually ends. That's what they, they really say. And, but the, that quote there is awesome because we all think life is over when we get to our mid thirties. It's like, we have all these goals, at least me, I'm speaking out of a mid twenties guy. So to me, when I think of myself as like 35, I think of, I'm going to have it all in place and like, I won't be striving. I won't be progressing. I won't have the same wonder and curiosity I do now. I create these stories that are false. They're fallacies, right? Um, I'm slowly teaching myself that, but I haven't made goals outside of 10 years because it's so funny. I love that. Like we, we always talk about life as if it ends in our thirties. <laughs> we have, we have 60 more years after our thirties, right? mind-blowing anyways so uh oh here I, I actually elaborated on this i say this hits home because i have goals in life that don't exceed 40 years old to be honest however i'll still have another 40 years left however that's why i'm ambitious with my goals is because of all the stories i hear of people passing away young and that is true that is very true i'm very ambitious with my goals it actually drives a lot of people in my life crazy they all tell me to like chill out, stop making goals so far down the road, which I'm sorry, is 10 years that far? I'm sorry. I'm sorry if a decade's a long time. No, that's not even far in my opinion. But anyways, everyone in my life is telling me to chill out, not think about 10 years down the road. But I can't wait. This is the stubborn side of me is I can't wait to get 10 years down the road. I'm going to reach my goals. 
I know it. And I'm going to tell them, listen, I had a plan in place and I followed the KPI for that plan. Like it's nothing crazy, people. It's just some investing goals and whatnot. Stuff, something that is so attainable for all of us if we just put some money away every month. Anyways, and, and I don't know why if this is a hot take and please, if you're listening, if you take this personally, it might say something about the baggage you've got, but I think when a person hears someone making really audacious goals and, and really hit, trying to hit them hard, there's resistance there, maybe because of their insecurities or fears, uh, you know, they like people sometimes don't like to be reminded of what they're not doing this. I know this sounds so douchey. I am so sorry. Okay. But I have to say this in case you're going through something similar. People don't like being reminded of what they're not good at or don't like being reminded of their, their failures, I guess, or just even lack of, they don't feel like, yeah, that's it. They don't like being reminded of their lack. And, um, and we might actually get this where people in our lives start to project that fear and insecurity on us in some sort of substitute emotion like jealousy or anger just because we're shining a light on an insecurity and fear. So anyways, I think that's why I might get a lot of flack is that especially that fear part. I've got a lot of people who are scared. I'm going to potentially jeopardize my financial future, even though I'm I don't want you to think I'm, I'm going to the casino with all my money like these are viable investment vehicles. So, and very reliable and valid investment vehicles, might I say. So anyways, fear-based insecurities, they all get projected. I've said this a million times, fear and insecurities are always going to get projected as substitute emotions, jealousy, anger, and probably a few others I'm missing. So don't take anything personally, people. That's your friendly reminder. Yeah. Maybe when I'm 34, I'll, uh, I'll make another 10 year goal plan. And we'll go from there. So in this scene, she also mentions that her cells regenerate every seven years. And yet we identify with our old selves as the exact same person we were. And I, by the way, I actually fact-checked this way back. Stanford did this. They studied it, looked into it. Turns out seven to ten years, everything, all our cells regenerate. Even our important organs regenerate. And those do it even faster than seven to ten years. So... This means you are literally not the same person physically as you were seven to 10 years ago. You physically cannot identify with that old body whatsoever. That was not you. You are not the person in the photo. Your consciousness technically is not the same consciousness because whatever cells in your brain create the concept and belief of a consciousness of our conscience doesn't exist. I'll say that one more time. Even your conscience does not exist because the cells in your brain that create the belief and perception of a conscience have been regenerated. So that concept you have of whatever your conscience is, that even is different. It is now like a new perception and belief technically, but you're identifying as the exact same one. This is food for thought. I don't want to sound preachy, even though I am, but this is literally just food for thought people. So I don't know the symbolism at all during this scene, but these two guys are at a bar. I'll try to paint the picture so you can maybe perceive this because I, I still have no idea. They're at the bar. They're talking. The guy's got a gun and they're schmoozing. He's like showing them the gun. And so these fellows are talking and this, the, the one fellow is telling a story about when he worked at a gas station, he had to shoot someone and kill them. And then... His buddy says, well, a well-armed population is the best way to fight tyranny. And then he's like, yeah, you can say that again, buddy. And anyways, and then he pulls the gun and he goes, that's why I carry this thing everywhere I go now. Cocks it, puts it on the table. He goes, I wonder if this thing still works. And then his buddy goes, hey, you should, you should uh, pull the trigger and find out. Shoots his buddy. Like they kind of made it look half intentional, half accidental. Buddy hits the ground, bleeding out in his gut. Then the buddy grabs a gun from behind the counter because it's at a bar, shoots him in the head and kills him. You tell me what that resembles. Is that just a res is that resembling the US and their relationship with guns or something? That they all kind of believe in guns and how they can save you, even though like this guy literally used it at the gas station against someone, like, but they use it as this mode of protection apparently. 
And then and then they kill each other in the most ridiculous way. So does it just show that the guns, which are there for protection, end up just innocently killing people accidentally and quite pathetically? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. I honestly still don't know what that resembles. But this whole movie's subjective. So it is what, what it is. And actually this movie... It, the way the animation, it moves around, kind of like you're underwater. And some things don't make sense. Like in some scenes, like the glass will break, but then they cut and, and the glass is there again, not broken. And subtle things like that make it appear to be like a dream. And that's why, uh, um, not to spoil the plot, but at the very end, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, you don't know if the guy's dead or dreaming. And the whole thing looks like a dream, though. So they kind of hint at that. There is a quote in the movie. It's called Systematic Questioning of the Idea of Happiness. This reminded me of The Happiness Lab by Dr. Lori Santos. And it's funny that just a year ago I was reading this because in today's social narrative, everyone's questioning the idea of happiness. At least I see it on my algorithms way more. If y'all are wondering, like, why does Zev sound a little different maybe? Oh, it's because I split this up into a couple of days. I do that sometimes. So bear with me. Live as though something actually depended on someone's actions. That's what they said in this movie. It, to me, that's extremely stoic, almost nihilistic, actually. I love that it, it's similar to the fifth agreement when he says, everything is a mask for meaning. To live as though something actually depended on someone's actions is, is almost like you're giving into the game of life. Like you're just here to have fun. You know nothing matters. Nothing's influenced by anything. It's all out of our hands, but you're just here to have fun. That's what that quote reminds me of. That's why I really liked it, and I wrote it down. On the journey to finding what you love, you will find everything you hate and blocks your path to what you desire. Could not be more true. Reminds me of yin-yang theory. What that means is you need evil to have good, and you need good to have evil. You need a bit of the sun to have the moon. You need a bit of the moon to have the sun. And you can see how this goes. You need opposites in order to even conceptualize the, something else. All human constructs are because of a polar opposite somewhere else. There's a trippy concept in Hidden Brain's podcast that I recall. He says a symphony, for example, is wonderful and magnificent, not because it sounds beautiful. It's because when you really think about it, a note, a note in music is nothing, literally nothing. And that nothing ends by a something, a sound. And that sound has to end again to nothing. And that's where the note comes in. But imagine if then there was no nothing at all and it was just a note, just one frequency, one pitch. Well, you wouldn't even have the concept of a note because you wouldn't know because it's never ending. So we need this nothing. And so notice that two things that in essence don't exist when put together create something in existence. So I'll repeat that one more time is that no sound at all, nothing compared to a pitch, a constant pitch that also would sound like nothing if it had no breaks, when put together, does create something like a symphony. And that's the beauty. And that's what this reminded me of, right? It's like when we are on the journey to find what we love, we're going to find what we hate as well. It's inevitable. And that's awesome. And I wish more people would realize it's not a bad thing when you come across something you hate and that's treated you poorly like that why put that negative connotation there that actually means you're on the way to finding what you love if you really think about this theory deeply and for people that would say no i want just the hedonistic aspects of the journey that's ridiculous that's like saying you just want the pitch in my previous analogy it's it's actually not feasible like you need both yin yang theory moving on to this incredible moment in the movie so Picture this, an old man is up on a telephone pole. A group of guys, they're walking past, they say, stupid bastard. And they keep walking, then they say to each other, you know, he's no better than us. He's all action, no theory. We're all theory, no action. For some context, they were preaching one-liners. A lot of the one-liners I just read to you, they were saying. And that's why they then talk about being all theory, no action, because they say all this stuff that sounds very wise, but they're not taking action on the wisdom. Whereas this old man is up on a telephone pole, like it's ridiculous. He's up there, looks like he's stuck. And there, and he, that is all action, but there was no theory there. He didn't think his, his plans through. He's just up on a telephone pole for no reason. 
And uh, that's why we, we judge people. And but in reality, when we look in the mirror, we're not all that bad, much better. But this specific example still makes me laugh. Like these guys think they're hot shit. And then they're like, oh, wait, he's actually no different than us. We're all on one end of the spectrum, just like he's all the way on one end of the spectrum. So I want you listening to think about what end of the spectrum are you on? Are you way, way leaned too far there? Do you have to come in the middle just like th these two groups of people should have? There's a scene, these two guys, they're talking and then the fellow proposes that they just look at each other in the eyes and say nothing. It was kind of awkward watching it, but they do this. They just look at each other's eyes. They're sitting across from each other at the table. And at the end of the 10 seconds of silence, the one fellow says, I was being aware of the moment, thinking about what I was thinking about instead of being in the moment. And, and this is going to be so nuanced, like this is not deep at all I'm about to say, but I've just never even thought about that feeling. I felt it before, but I've never had someone articulate it before. And it was refreshing to hear someone else say that, yeah, there are these moments that sometimes when you get stuck thinking about what you're thinking or feeling in the moment, and it's this weird, surreal, removing yourself from reality situation. It, and we've all been there before, like especially when you're younger, let's say you're with a girl or, or a guy or whoever and you're on a date or something, and there are these kind of intimate moments that you're then thinking about the moment more than you're being in the moment. That's what this movie was talking about. I wrote here, there were some scenes about fate, but that's super cliche and doesn't intrigue me. <laughs> See, today, knowing what I know about free will, that actually, fate alone, that concept of fate and destiny does intrigue me, because it's very philosophical. So, it's funny, old Zev was not having it. Well, it appears that is all. That is all my notes on The Waking Life. Go watch that movie, people. This was fun. I haven't talked about this stuff in a while. It was really, really refreshing to do so. So just like that, another one in the books. Thanks so much for listening. And may I say it, becoming self-improved. I know, I know you want to barf right now. Rate five stars if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And, and again, people, this was really fun. I love philosophy. My goodness. Baruch Hashem for taking that class at Fanshawe. What would I do without it? And I wish you the best. Stay tuned every Friday. Every Friday, you know this is going to drop before you even wake up. Oh, I don't even know what to say. I'm going to get out of here. Enjoy your weekend. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And hello, Peyton.